Good morning. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12. We're back in our study of 1 Corinthians, and we actually left off at a really good point in 1 Corinthians last time. It was right before Thanksgiving. We finished up chapter number 11, and it was a tremendous, it's a tremendous way that worked out because chapter 12 begins a dramatic change in the epistle to the Corinthians. Paul is beginning to talk about spiritual gifts and really builds into a crescendo all the way to chapter number 15, which if you remember, is just unpacking the glories of the resurrection. And so it's, it's all these problems have been addressed, and there's another problem being addressed in here, but it's done in such a positive way. It's not troubleshooting per se, it's building to a crescendo, and it's a, it's a wonderful way to, to end the epistle. Uh, we today are just going to be having an introductory sermon, I'm going to introduce the whole section, and it's going to take me a while to get to our passage, so just hold on and, and we will get there. But the tone of 1 Corinthians becomes more and more and more positive. And the, the main body, as I said, of instruction ends on a high note. Paul has been dealing with matters of worship since and gathering since chapter number eight. I, we've been going slow enough. You probably uh, have not picked up on that. But since chapter number eight, he's been dealing with problems in gatherings and worship probably that they wrote him about. And the reason I say that, if you have your Bibles and you want to flip, I'll show you what I'm talking about. In chapter number seven and verse number one, Paul says this, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Okay, so they wrote a letter to Paul and he's responding to this letter. And he says, now concerning matters about which you wrote. Look at chapter 7, verse number 25. Now concerning the betrothed. So there is another subject, right? Chapter 8, and verse number 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. So there's another topic they wrote him about. Then we get to today's passage, which is chapter 12, and verse number 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts. And he's going to do that one more time. In chapter number 16, he's going to say, now concerning. And so he's answering letters that they wrote to him. Now this section, chapters 12 to 14, that I'm going to basically summarize today. And then we are going to spend a lot of time in these chapters because it's rich. And the chapter on the resurrection is rich. And I think it's going to be good for us to really slow down and see the glories of of our spiritual giftedness and the glories of how God stitched the body of Christ together and ending on the glories of the resurrection. I, I really want to encourage the, the saints in these sections as we walk through this together. But this is a controversial subject, isn't it? Spiritual gifts? It is. It is. In many parts of professing Christianity, it's controversial. Probably no area of Bible doctrine has been more misunderstood and more abused even within evangelicalism than this idea of spiritual gifts. Yet no area of doctrine is more important to spiritual health and effectiveness of the church than the spiritual gifts. And so you got the most controversial 
topic being probably the most helpful topic for the body of Christ. Apart from the direct energizing of God's Spirit, nothing is more vital to believers than the ministry of their spiritual gifts and their endowment of those for the service of the body of Christ. Let me say that one more time. I'm going to keep repeating this. You are spiritual gifted. It was given to you by Jesus Christ for the purpose of ministering to the body. Every single one of you. If you're in the body of Christ. So while the topic is spiritual gifts, there is a problem that he's addressing, and it is most certainly the abuse of the gift of tongues. Because he talks about spiritual gifts. Well, um, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Um, and, And he does this through three main sections. Chapter number 12 is... Uh, teaching that God gives all members spiritual gifts to build up the church. Now, let me, let me say something else about this. No member of the body is superior, and no member of the body of Christ is inferior. Paul makes that very clear in chapter number 12. Every spiritual gift is essential for the body of Jesus Christ. Then you get to chapter number 13, and Paul teaches that love is primary. Using your spiritual gifts without love uh, is useless and is even harmful. Then you get to chapter number 14, and it explains the purpose of gifts in more detail. And Paul says that prophecy should be preferred to tongues because the church is edified more through prophecy. Now, why is it edified more through prophecy? Because prophecy, by the way, I believe that it would be teaching, preaching, and correcting type gift. That's what it's talking about there. Prophecy is understandable words. And speaking in tongues is not understandable. And so, uh, well, let me just, I'll just say this. Spiritual experience, mark this down. Spiritual experiences are not self-validating. Spiritual experiences are not self-validating. The, in other words, the ability to speak in tongues, perform miracles, or cast out demons does not prove that that work is from the Lord. Satan loves to counterfeit experiences. He does it all the time. Do you remember when God sent Moses to rescue the Israelites from Egypt? Remember that? God gave Moses a sign to perform. He performed it in front of the elders of Israel. Then he went to Pharaoh and he he did it. Do you remember what the sign was? He threw his staff down and became a snake. What did Pharaoh's magicians do? They duplicated it. By the way, in case you, you didn't know this, 2 Timothy 3.8 gives us their names. Their names are Janus and Jambres. That's 2 Timothy 3.8. And they were able to counterfeit that one. Then you have the, the water turned to blood. They were able to counterfeit that one. Then in chapter, uh, Exodus 8, verse number 7, that they were able to counterfeit the frogs, the, 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 building, the, the appearance of the frogs. 
And so these two magicians were not, they were spiritual, but they weren't the type of spiritual we think. They were empowered by Satan and satanic forces to be able to do that. And they were performing counterfeit miracles. Now, Jesus validated this truth in Matthew 7, 22. Understand what Jesus is saying here. He said this, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? This word, by the way, is talking about in the future. Did we not cast out demons in your name? There's another counterfeit spiritual gift. Did we and do mighty works in your name? Would be miracles in your name. And what did Jesus say? On the day that I judge the eternal destiny of every human being, he will say, on that day, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do you understand that these things are not proof that is a work of God? We'll get into what that is later in the sermon. Any spiritual experience disconnected from the word of God is suspect. Paul said in Colossians chapter number three that visions are not proof of spirituality. In fact, 3.18, Colossians 3.18 says that they only puff people up, people that have visions. Jude 8 describes false teachers as those who rely upon their dreams. False teachers rely upon their dreams as opposed to what? Exactly, Scripture, the Word of God. Okay, so dreams and visions are not solid spiritual experiences. Yet, think about evangelicalism. Much of evangelicalism reveres people who have dreams and visions, don't they? They revere people who are more spiritual. They're more in tune with God. But these things don't prove anything. Actually, it might prove that you should lay off the pepperoni pizza at night. I mean, seriously, folks, God is very clear in Scripture that visions and dreams and miracles and all these things do not prove that one is is in the Spirit of God, that they're a spiritual person. It's very clear in Scripture. You see, now why am I saying all this? There were some at Corinth who claimed extraordinary and spectacular spiritual gifts and they were taking the name, or, or they were even given the name, pneumaticos. Pneumaticos, which means the spiritual ones. And they were the ones that everyone else uh, looked up to because everyone else, they were the second class Christians. They were, these people were the super Christians. And so Paul is writing to address that phenomenon at Corinth and to show us the nature of true spirituality. And so, here's a question. What does it mean to be spiritually minded? What does it it mean to be a spiritual person with an authentic Christian spirituality? And that's the focus that we're going to see today. Now, how did God design spiritual gifts? God designed the church so that every member of Christ's church has been given a supernatural endowment. That means... Quite literally, everybody here who is in Christ has been given a supernatural endowment by God through the Holy Spirit, which through the Spirit, 
These things are God's divine means of ministering His Word and power among His people into the world. Does that not do something inside your heart? They are God's, these gifts are God's supernatural provision for the edification, for the building up of the church, for the evangelization of the world. True spiritual gifts are given by God to strengthen and manifest oneness and harmony and power. And that design is starkly different from the belief of Greco-Roman culture. And so I want to take a minute to talk about the culture of the day. I'm not going to go in depth. It's, it's really fascinating. There's stuff, I was, I would just, Heather probably got tired of listening to me go on and on about some of the stuff I learned about this, but it was commonly believed that certain in, now this is outside the church I'm talking about right now. It was commonly believed that certain people were endowed with unusual spiritual powers, such as predicting the future. Remember the, the girl that uh, followed Paul, saying this is a servant of the Most High God? Um, talking to the dead. Pronouncing curses. Now, Corinth, if you remember, was in close proximity to the Oracle of Delphi. The, it's a temple dedicated to Apollo where the faithful would receive direction from the gods. And given the large number of pagan temples around the city, the, the notion that certain individuals possess great spiritual insight was no doubt held widely by the people in the area. That's the cultural, that's the culture. Many of those thought to possess these divine powers and abilities would offer up, listen, ecstatic utterances like speaking in tongues. It was, it, was, it was babble. Engage in religious frenzies. Fall into trances and other things. And so this was most often done during temple festivities. And among those groups, those um, religious groups, we, we would consider some of them, we would call them proto-Gnostic. Now, Gnosticism came to rise in the second century, and so proto was like a pre-Gnostic. These are people who look for secret knowledge that nobody else had. Secret knowledge and hidden keys to the meaning of life. And such individuals were often des designated enthusiasts. Enthusiasts. They're characterized by public outbursts of ecstatic language and extreme religious practices, okay? That's the culture of the day. Now, although the Old Testament prophets, let's go back to Scripture, were given revelation through dreams and visions and other supernatural manifestations, Pentecost marked a new age in redemptive history in which the Spirit of God was poured out on all believers, not just the prophets, okay? Not just on a few enlightened individuals. In fact, the dwell, indwelling of the Holy Spirit is that which characterizes all who are in Christ. And since those in whom the Spirit dwells have been transferred from sin and death and bondage to the law, 
to that freedom in Christ, which are now adopted as sons and daughters of Christ and heirs to all the riches and treasures of heaven, the primary manifestation of the working of the Spirit of God, don't miss this, the primary manifestation of the working of the Spirit of God in your life is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 23. The fruit of the Spirit stood in sharp contrast to the works of the flesh, Galatians 5, uh, 19 to 21, which characterizes individuals prior to their salvation, you see. Now, it is not dramatic and sensational demonstrations of spirituality or enthusiasm which characterizes the gifts of the Spirit but more ordinary and mundane things that have more to do with the transformed behavior of individual Christians. We're, we're, Christians, people are always looking for the supernatural. They're always looking for something out of the ordinary. And God made it very clear it's the very ordinary by which we grow. Now, let's think about the congregation in Corinth for just a minute. One of the chief evidences of spiritual immaturity of the Corinthian Christians was their lack of discernment. If a reli- and, and it came out this way. If a religious practice seemed to have a supernatural effect, they assumed it was from God. If a priest or a soothsayer performed a miracle, they assumed it was by God's power. And like many Christians today, they believed if something works, then it must be right or good. Pragmatism. Some of the believers, however, realized that the confusion and division and immoral practices characterized by many of the church members could not be of God. And so therefore, they asked Paul to tell them how to determine what is of the Holy Spirit and what is of some other spirits? That's the question, and that brings us to our passage today. If you'll stand with me as we read God's Word together. Chapter 12, verse number 1. Now concerning the spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, or anathema is that word. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. So today, we're going to look at answer the question, what identifies a truly spiritual person? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, this simple little passage and the introduction to this magnificent section on our spiritual gifts. I pray that today you will give us understanding of what it truly means to be spiritual and that you will draw our hearts to Jesus Christ like you never have before. That we'll draw to him in praise and honor and, and, and glorify him and that, he'll be, that Christ will be at the center of our universe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. So what identifies a spiritual person? 
Well, Paul answers it. I'm going to give you three things that he mentions here. Number one, a spiritual person is gifted by the Spirit. Notice what he says. In verse number one, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. So Paul, I'm, I'm going to be very quick in this little part right here. Paul wants to make sure that the Corinthians have a clear and complete understanding of their spiritual gifts. That, that special equipping for the ministry that the Holy Spirit gives in some measure to all believers that are to be holy under his control and used for Christ's glory. And so he says, um, I want now concerning spiritual gifts. Literally, the, the, the verbiage there is spiritual things. It's, it's pulling uh, spiritual gifts from the, the word gifts that the translators are using in almost every version of the Bible. It's being pulled from the context of the passage, particularly verse number three. But spiritual gifts, what are spiritual gifts? Have you ever asked that question? What are spiritual gifts? Let me give you a definition real quick. Spiritual gifts are divine enablements for ministry, characteristics of Jesus Christ that are to be manifested through the body corporate. In other words, the body together. Each gift of the Holy Spirit, each gift the Holy Spirit now gives to believers it had its perfect expression in Jesus Christ. Now let me explain this. Jesus Christ perfectly demonstrated all spiritual gifts because he was God. He was able to perform all the functions that needed to be performed to sustain the church, right? Now, as his church continues to live out his life on earth, Christ divvies out those gifts through the power of the Holy Spirit to individual believers, and it takes a group of us to be able to do what Christ does by himself. You see? And it's empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Think about that for just a minute. Every single one of you, I can't say this enough, if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit has empowered you with a divine gift that you can minister to somebody else or multiple people sitting here today or attending church with you. How amazing is that? And that gift, when you use that gift, you are imaging a specific facet of the multifaceted character of Jesus Christ. I want to throw this in there too. It can only be done if you exercise your gift. If you don't exercise your gift, you are missing an opportunity to reflect Jesus Christ's character in your gift, you see. Well, let me move on to number two. Number two, what makes a spiritual person? A spiritual person isn't led astray by pagan values. Look at verse number two. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by, to mute idols, however you were led. Now, what Paul does is he, he portrays pagans, paganism, as holding people captive to lifeless idols. Now, in context, he might be thinking of Israel's idolatry 
and their struggle that they had all through the Old Testament. And, and we can go to one specific passage, Habakkuk 2, 18 and 19, where the prophet says, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes a speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. Now, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 12, 2, is this, that despite their great intellectual ability, the Greek pagans didn't come to idolatry for intellectual reasons. In other words, that they were convinced of the truth of paganism. Rather, Paul treats them as somebody who didn't know any better. This is not a compliment. Now think about it for just a minute. The, in Habakkuk, he talks about, I'll go back, the metal idol. Do we have metal idols today? Yeah, we do. Oh, beautiful car. Mine would be fiberglass because I like Corvettes, but still, right? We have metal idols. We have wooden idols. We call them houses. We have all sorts of different idols. In the pagans of our day, these are the things that they think are going to make them happy and fulfilled and satisfied. Shiny metal coins piled up in abundance. You name it, it's there. And what Paul is saying is people just don't know any better. This is just the culture of the day. And so Paul reminds the Corinthians in verse number two of how easily they were led astray. And all of us can be led astray, can't we? We can. The mystery religions and the pagan cults of of the Roman uh, world were marked and characterized by spirituality filled with ecstasies and strange phenomena and uh, displays of power and spiritual pyrotechnics. I mean, there were people that chirped. The Old Testament talks about that. There were people that thrashed around uh, a lot like what you see in the modern tongues movement when people are thrown to the ground. That happened in pagan society. It happens in pagan society today. And we've seen the Corinthians do this over and over uh, in this letter. They bring with them into their new Corinthian assembly, they bring all the pagan practices, whatever it is. That is why Paul started the letter with talking about wisdom, true wisdom from above. Don't drag in the wisdom of the world. Seek the true wisdom that's from above. Bring with them these, their new, into their new Christian experience the baggage from their old paganism. And, the, and so they think about what it means to be spiritual, and the only spiritual referent they have before they get saved is what they see outside the church. And so they bring those in. Um, and it's, it's, it's like they want shock and awe. They were saying, we want the phenomenal. We want it to be eerie and inexplicable and breathtaking. And that's how you know it's real. That's what the Corinthians seem to be saying. And you know what? Much of evangelicals is no different today, is it? What do they want? 
They want a worship experience. You listen, that word experience is used over and over. We're going to have a worship experience. They want something that makes them feel good. Whether that feeling good is with emotionally moving music, a wonderful uplifting sermon, speaking in tongues, what the common denominator is that it focuses upon them and their experience rather than the true and living God and what he holds to be true. Do you see the difference? And so, so we, we have two evidences of spirituality. A spiritual person is gifted by the Spirit. A spiritual person is led astray by pagan values. And verse number three, a spiritual person makes Christ the center. Look at verse number three. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is the Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now he's reminding them yet again, of how it was when they were pagans. And the world is in opposition to Christianity. When non-Christians discover how far-reaching and exclusive the claims of the Lordship of Jesus Christ really are, their reaction is always negative. The world does not want Jesus Christ to rule over them. You hear it. And I don't want to get us derailed. You hear it in politics. If you want a certain kind of morality in politics, they'll tell you, do not try to impose your values on us. And Christians, somewhat naively, will say, yes, but this is what the Lord commanded us to do. Well, they're not rejecting you, dear Christian. They're rejecting the Lordship of Jesus Christ and His moral law. Right? If it's not with their words, it's certainly with their hearts. The reaction of a rebellious world to Jesus Christ is this. Let him be accursed. In other words, let Jesus be an anathema. That's what they're saying. And that's the word Paul uses, translated here, accursed, anathema. The world rejects Christ. But guess what happens? When the Holy Spirit invades a human heart and makes us new creatures in Christ, what was once a word of rejection and rebellion becomes a word of adoration, of glad-hearted submission. It's a word of rejoicing, a pledge of allegiance. And so the earliest Christian creed was this. You know what the earliest Christian creed was? Jesus is Lord. Praise be to God. That's something to us that's uplifting, isn't it? Won't it be wonderful on that day when he comes back and we not only say Jesus is Lord, but we see it demonstrated in every area of the world, whether it's the recreation of the world, the new structure of government, perfect bodies, perfect minds, Everything is being being made new, and we will be able to say, Jesus is Lord, and literally everywhere we look, every other person will be saying, Jesus is Lord. Won't that be great? It's going to be a wonderful time. I cannot wait for that. And so, um, no one can say. Now, what Jesus, well, look at the verse again. 
Paul says no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to explain this because this is misunderstood. When Paul says no one can say, he doesn't mean mouth the words. Anybody can say Jesus is Lord with their words. What he means is no one can say from the heart with joyful surrender and submission of their lives. No one can bend the knee. No one can truly pledge allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ unless the Holy Spirit has erupted into their lives and made them a new creation. That's what he's saying. when he says no one can say Jesus is Lord. And so if you want to know the central mark of a spiritual person, it is this. A central mark of true spirituality is not giftedness, but rather Christ-centeredness. Is your life centered on Jesus Christ? The truly spiritual among us are not infatuated with their own reflections, but with the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. The truly spiritual are Christ-centered. That's the mark of true spirituality. Self-forgetful and Christ-absorbed rather than not self-absorbed and Christ-forgetful, you see. We're self-forgetful. The fundamental ministry of the Holy Spirit who shines is never on Himself and certainly not upon ourselves. It is always, always, always on Jesus Christ in all His glory. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's very interesting, verse number 3. In the original, if I, can, if I can bore you or belabor this point with the original language here, if I were to translate it word for word and make it wooden rather than put it in language that's easier to read, it would literally read this way. You ready? This is the word order. No one in the Spirit of God can say Jesus is cursed and no one is able to say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. That's how it's originally said. And you'll notice something, and this is very important to 1 Corinthians. It's, it's a bracket. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of God. No one can say in the Holy Spirit, and no one can say by the Holy Spirit is how he finishes, except by the Spirit is how he finishes. And the Holy Spirit brackets it, and right in the middle is Jesus is Lord, and that is a a divisive language. And 1 Corinthians full of them. I don't mention it, but 1 Corinthians is full of language devices like that. And so, the beginning of the verse and the end of the verse, Paul talks about the Spirit in the center is Jesus Christ. And that's actually, if you think about it, that's actually the structure of a truly spiritual person, isn't it? Authentic spirituality follows the structure. The Holy Spirit directs our attention always to Jesus, always to his praise, always to his service. J.I. Packer, many of you know who he is, right? J.I. Packer, he said this, the spirit-given certainty of being loved and redeemed and adopted through Christ into the Father's house blossom into believers' hearts. You begin to understand and, and find a well-grounded assurance in the wonder of the love of Jesus 
For you who gave himself up to the cross to reconcile you to God, to bring you into the Father's family, that's the hallmark of true spirituality. That's yours, that yours is a life now centered on Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, dear believer, do you know anything about that? Does that describe your life? Does that describe your aspiration and the longing of your heart that you should be more and more and more centered on Jesus Christ? That He might be the sun in your solar system of your life around which everything else orbits, that Christ may be all, that you might say gladly and joyfully, Jesus is Lord. The marks of a true spirituality are those. If you think about it, the true spiritual giants are tiny little people devoted to making much of Jesus Christ. Spiritual giants, let me say it again, are tiny little people who live to display how great Jesus is is. You name them all the way back in history, whether it's Charles Spurgeon, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, and you can keep going on and on and on. William Carey, the great missionary, they lived to make Jesus Christ big and glorious and wonderful and awesome. Is that Describe your life, dear believer. That's Paul's message for the Corinthians, and it's his message for us. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and him crucified. We thank you for the spiritual gifts. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you have structured the church, gifted the church, so that we can minister to one another, and most importantly, so that we can uh, encourage one another to make Jesus the center of our worlds. In Christ's name we pray, amen.